2: Welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy, and this is a special edition of the show, which we're bringing to you from Washington, D.C., as part of our Open Future season, marking our 175th anniversary. And a star cast with me to mark us being around since 1843. With me in the studio, our editor-in-chief, Zannie Minton-Beddoes. Zannie, hello, back in D.C., where you spent a lot of years. And why is Open Future season your way of marking this anniversary? Well, and as you said, we turned 175
1: years this year. In 1843, when we were founded to fight for free trade, for free markets, for open societies, those values have really stuck with us over the last 175 years. And the world is very different than it was now. But I think they are under the greatest pressure from the left and from the right that they have been in many decades, perhaps certainly in my professional lifetime. And so I felt the right way to mark this anniversary was to launch a global conversation, to remake the case for classic British English liberalism and to think about what we need to do to sustain that belief in an open society and free markets in the
2: 21st century. Well, let me introduce our other guests. With us is David Rennie, our Washington Bureau Chief, just on his way out of this posting and off to China. Suitcases in the hall. Hello. Jonathan Cowan is president and co-founder of Third Way, a prominent voice in centre-left debates. Previously, he co-founded and ran America's then-largest Generation X advocacy group, Lead or Leave. And he's battled the NRA over gun policy.
3: Great to be here.
2: David Frum is senior editor at The Atlantic and author of *Trumpocracy: The Corruption of the American Republic*. He's a former speechwriter and advisor to George W. Bush and to Rudy Giuliani. Hello there, David. Hello. So, David Rennie, uh, as you pack your suitcase uh, and off you go, you're leaving America in some turmoil. What's it's not changed? My fault. It I was not your out? fault. There's a lot for which you can be held accountable. Possibly uh, not the whole of the Trump administration. Tell us a little bit about the arc of the America you started covering in this posting and where we've ended
4: up So I wrote my first stories in July 2012 and I actually looked at them last night and they were so sort of going out and looking at stories about the intransigent Tea Party Republicans getting ready to run for office again. And it was all about kind of purity tests, competitions between Republicans arguing that any compromise with the Democrats meant that you were a total traitor. And reading them... It both felt like an entirely unfamiliar world because it was all about, you know, debts and deficits and caring about how much government spent and very strict conservative principles. But then you saw the seeds of where we are now, because actually, when you asked Republican voters in places like the Iowa State Fair, what they hated was... Government spending too much on people they despise, so the lazy poor or foreigners. So you could see the seeds of something that at the time we thought was about conservative purity.
2: And Zannie, do you see continuities from the time that you started uh, writing from from Washington? That that was a a very long
1: time ago. I first uh, came to Washington with The Economist in 1996, so 22 years ago. Um, it was the Clinton um, Dole campaign at that point. The US, I remember, I, like David, I went back and looked at my slightly yellowing clippings from that era. One of the themes that I was writing about a lot as the economics correspondent was the remarkable strength of the US economy, a lot of discussion of was it a new era of higher productivity, faster growth. Secondly, and this was really striking to me, was that the U.S. at that point was playing an enormous role internationally in international economic policy. It was absolutely number one. It was just after the Mexico crisis, U.S. had saved the day. Soon there, in the late 1990s, with the Asian emerging market crises, and. Tons and tons of my pieces were how the top dogs in the international economy were the U.S. So, again, that's that feels very, very different to the U.S. of today. But one thing, you know, plus a change, you might say, one of my first wonky economics articles was the supply side is right again. Do tax cuts promote economic growth? It's an article that, frankly, I could have written six months ago. <laughs>
2: David Frum, how much of this strikes you as following on from other things? I think I bumped into you first in the 1990s. And I was uh, looking at Clinton and attempted impeachments. And sometimes you you look around and think, well, there are commonalities, even if the cast has radically changed.
0: Well, I I did arrive like Zannie in Washington in 1996. And I've um, stuck here and have been through a lot of emotional turbulence. That period, as Annie said, looks now like a kind of American high noon, um, a period of absolutely unquestioned American dominance. I published a book around that time, A History of the 1970s, which was a much more difficult period. And in the introduction, I marveled, but a little ominously at the world I saw around me in 1999, 2000, about how this was a time where America had an ascendancy, unlike, greater than any empire in history. And no one could see or even imagine the forces that might take it away. And yet everyone was insecure, nervous, and afraid. And that foreboding, that nonspecific foreboding then, I think then over the next 20-some years, has played itself out.
2: Non-specific foreboding how?
0: Well, uh, the, the book finished in 1999 and 2000, I, I just went through this incredible consumer abundance, the amazing ability to move around the world freely, um, the sense that enemies old, had either been overthrown or in fact had become new friends. The sense that America was going to be able to impose its system, its way of life, even its prejudices on the rest of the planet. And it seemed to me then we, we couldn't see any reason why it wouldn't be true. But yet I wrote in this introduction, it didn't feel true.
2: John Cowan, you were listening rather wryly uh, to that. What do you make of, of the major changes that we've seen? And, and in a sense, why did liberals, left liberals are the position that you're campaigning and often writing from? Why, why did they lose the plot?
3: So personally, I came to D.C. actually before everyone, it sounds like, in 1988, right out of college. And that was a moment at which the Democratic Party of which I'm a member, had actually been out of the White House for quite a long while and was doing a lot of soul-searching. And the end result of that soul-searching was it decided it actually couldn't be super liberal. It needed to move towards a center. It needed to modernize, very similar, obviously, to what happened uh, in in Britain with Tony Blair. And it did so quite successfully, riding many of the trends that David talked about. But now... (laughs) Democrats essentially had two long periods of White House dominance uh, interrupted by a Republican period, and now the party is almost in free fall intellectually. And it's caught up in the much larger trends of populism that are remaking the world and democracies around the world in an incredibly intense way. And what I see from the center-left is that essentially because of the large tectonic forces reshaping the American economy, you have a rise of populism on both sides. And on the center left, you see that uh, carried in the form of Bernie Sanders. And the bottom line question uh, on the center left is, should we be democratic socialists or should we be democratic capitalists?
2: Zannie, what's the answer? Well, I think
1: both the left and the right are grappling with this populist sense. And there is a sense that both need to be remade. And that's part of what our whole open future conversation is about. I think what's happened since the late 90s, and I, I wasn't here in Washington, is that we had, we had the Clinton boom. We then had really in the 2000s two at different times key punctuating events. One was the overreach that came from Iraq on the international foreign policy sense, which punctured very quickly this sense of a unipolar moment. And secondly, on the economic side, we had the global financial crisis and the aftermath of that, which absolutely shook faith in the global elite, if you will, ability to manage an economy. And that has meant that the kind of globalism, which is now a derogatory word that arguably that we stand for, the idea that globalization, open borders, open market economies are really the right way forward fell short. And it did genuinely fell yeah. short. And I think now, both on the left, you are on the left grappling with an answer. On the right, people are grappling with a different kind of an answer. And what those people who like to think of themselves as the, as the centrist liberals, the traditional English liberals, liberals is a terrible word to use in this context, because I constantly have to say that I don't mean the left of the Democratic Party. We have to rethink that and remake it and come up with a new consensus that will hold.
0: There are four. When you ask, how was the plot lost? I would say there are four things, there are four ideas in the air when we start this conversation and when Zanny and I were new and you are a veteran of Washington John in the nineteen nineties, four four mistakes that came from a certain tradition and that have now had a reckoning. Uh, The first was a belief In the United States, deregulation of transportation and of other kinds of industries had worked brilliantly. We deregulated energy markets. That worked brilliantly. Therefore, deregulating financial markets totally, that must be the icing on the cake. And so the attitudes that produced so many successes in other areas that ended the energy crisis were applied to banking with catastrophic impact. The second mistake growing out of the past was the belief that America needed to keep international order. This Cold War was over, and we needed to intervene As much for humanitarian as for strategic reasons, and that was tested in um, the Balkans in the 1990s, and that was the thinking that led to the Iraq War, which was not a success, to put it mildly. I was a big advocate of it, but it was not a success. Third was the euro. Maybe vying with Iraq, maybe ahead of Iraq, is the most unsuccessful project of the past two decades you know we want to have currency stability that's a liberal idea currency stability is good what if we have total currency immobility across an entire continent of people who don't speak the same languages and don't have one government and and then the fourth is uh, growing out of our belief well we, we believe in free movement of capital we believe in free movement of goods Maybe free movement of people, we should try that. And that turned out to be – turns out that people are completely unlike goods and capital. And that allowing – these massive movements of population has been absolutely catastrophic for political stability.
2: Well, you've touched on a lot of themes that we're dealing with and arguing about. And in some cases, from your last two points, contesting in our open uh, future season. But I want to bring David Rennie back in because David is, is famous for traveling in the job. I think you have covered – have you covered every state?
4: I've been to 46, so sorry uh, Utah and Washington states, among others. <laughs>
2: You'll have to come back to do those. You've just got to finish the the collection. But what I'd love to know from you in a more granular sense, as someone who mixes analysis, with very lively reporting, do you feel the mood shift when you're on the ground? We sit here and we talk loftily about populism and what might be driving it and what each of us might like to blame. But do you feel it? And if so, what are the little vignettes that have come home to you?
4: Yeah, I think there's been a a policy change and a politics change, and both of them are pretty worrying from our point of view. So the big policy change, I think, is if you really listen to what people are complaining about, people feel exposed to competition that they think is unfair and unbearable. And some of that is from foreigners far away because of globalization, which they didn't choose and don't like. Some of it is from foreigners at home. As David says, immigration has not been uncontested. Some of it's from machines. That's a story that you know has a long way to run. Some of it's from things that we at The Economist absolutely celebrate, like women entering the workforce in large numbers or African-Americans getting the same access to good factory jobs as whites used to you know, reserve for themselves. But people want to be protected against competition that they think is unfair and unbearable. And that's a trap for the politics part, which is mainstream politicians, I think, not just here but actually in the UK as well at like the rest of Europe, They don't know how to protect people from that kind of competition without tanking the economy. And that creates a vacuum into which the populists run, saying, we can protect you. And if the elites didn't so far, it's because they're not on your side. They don't like you and they're profiting from your loss.
2: And this sounds, John, to your point about Democratic Party thinking being in, in free fall, to, to use your word, just sounds like the, the big challenge for what's traditionally being the party that attracted blue-collar workers and those who need to make their way up in society.
3: Yeah. D- to what David said, uh, my way of putting that is you you can boil it all down for most Americans. The central promise of a democracy and democratic capitalism is not actually that you'll be able to vote, even though that is important. It's that you'll be able to earn a good life, that there will be work available for you. You will have the skills to do that work, and that work will enable you to provide for your family. That simple promise that you will have the opportunity to earn a good life is what is unraveled for most Americans. And when that promise unravels, everything, including your politics, unravels with it.
1: Two very short points. One is um, a word we haven't yet mentioned, but which is central to this and the place that uh, David is going, which is China. China and the rise of China and the consequences of the integration of China into the global system was something that nobody really thought about in the late 1990s and has been completely pivotal to affecting the mood in America. And the second is... We've been here before, and David Frum, you're much more of a historian than I am, but this has very, very strong echoes of the late 19th, early 20th century, another period of massive technological change, another period of changing balance of power politics, another period of huge inequality, and one that spawned the progressive movement on this side of the Atlantic. It spawned huge social change in Europe. And I think what's stunning to me is how remarkably little
2: policy change we've seen on either side of the aisle here yet. Let's turn, if we could then, to what we should do about it, because we could sit here and, and wring hands this, this afternoon. It's not why people listen to this podcast. So let's just go around the table and get everybody's sort of key thought about where America should head or the one change that you think you should pursue to begin to put some of
3: this right. John. So uh, it's one change, but it's very sweeping. And it goes to the point that was just being discussed. We need a new social contract for the digital age. Literally nothing less than that. And either uh, American politics over the next 50 years is going to play out one of two ways, in my view. Either the two main political parties will have a vigorous, sustained debate and argument about what that new social contract should look like and what goes in it, and it will represent big, bold, radical change, or some form of... Virulent populism on either the left or the right, or maybe like in Italy, some combination thereof, will dominate our politics. A new social contract for the digital age is the bottom line on what we need.
2: Aren't you worried? I'm going to put you under a bit of pressure on that. This is is very, uh, it's kind of quite highfalutin. Uh, If I come to you and say, What do you want to do about America? and I get the reply, A new social contract for the digital age. Can you put a name? Can you put a face on that?
3: Sure, absolutely. Well, first of all, The debates that don't start out at a highfalutin place actually never get any staying power or traction that goes all the way back to the founding of the country. So I'm going to be in defense for a moment of the unpopular position of highfalutin ideas. That said, I'll give you one perfect example. America has millions of kids who go to college and half of those students drop out every year. Some of them have a crappy college experience. The rest shouldn't go in the first place. And instead of having 50,000 apprenticeships, we should have over a million that would radically change the economic circumstances of people in the 21st century.
2: David from your big idea.
0: I don't believe in big ideas. I believe in lots of, of little ideas. Um, I don't think the answer to the opioid problem is the same as the collapse of marriage among people who didn't go to college. And I don't think the answers to any of those things tell us an enormous amount about what to do about the managing the rise of China. But here's a threshold idea. So it's actually quite a small idea. But I think one of the ways that American politics has systematically gone wrong in the past 20 years as compared to before is the American governing elite, and societies are governed by elite, has become much more crass, self-seeking, and and separated from everybody else.
2: And, On both sides of the aisle?
0: Yeah. And it's not just aisles. I mean, that's true in business and in the military. I mean, in my, my late father-in-law, who owned and managed a newspaper, knew the people who printed, the, made the physical product and the people who drove it to its destination. Um, you know, there are obviously, you know, differences of income and, and life chances, but they, they had, he had a sense of obligation. If they got sick, he knew who they were. They weren't living in some remote factory town on the other side of the country to which he was connected by bits and bytes. And as American society has become more class-riven, it has also become a society in which those at the top are much more openly disdainful of everyone else. Strangely enough, we haven't heard
2: much about Donald Trump yet in this conversation. Danny, what do you have a, a, a challenge or a road to solutions that would begin to address some of the many tensions and problems and distortions well, that I arise think from Donald Trump? the interesting
1: thing about this conversation is that it points to forces that predate Donald Trump, which uh, the Trump presidency has exacerbated, blown open. But I think we would be mistaken to think if everything finishes and ends with Donald Trump. So I'm going to backtrack. And I actually agree with both John and David Frum that we need big ideas and small ideas. We need to move out of the complacency of thinking we just need to Tinker with what we have right now. Geopolitically, I think the big thing is what is the 21st century world order is not going to be a tinkered version of the post 1945 world order. It is going to be something that is built essentially by the US and China. And so we need a strategic relationship between those two countries. Domestically, I think liberals and David Frum's absolutely right. The liberal elite, if you will, and I use the liberal in the English sense, need to regain the spirit of reformism, frankly, which motivated the creation of The Economist 175 years ago. The repeal of the Corn Laws, the fight for free trade, was not something about some sort of nerdy economic comparative advantage so much as a means of attacking the entrenched elites of the British aristocracy. And liberals are at their best when they are radical reformers. They are trying to attack entrenched interests. They are trying to boost competition. They are trying to level the playing field. They are trying to disperse power. And that's what we need right now. I have got to read you at this point
2: an excerpt from The Economist in 1843. Before you were putting Trump on the cover, there's Annie, in which it says the latest intelligence from the United States, if the correspondence in the daily papers can be depended on, which is a pretty big if, dashes the hopes which the free traders of this country have entertained that a new Congress that would have a preponderance of representatives holding sound economic opinions on the American tariff free trade. The argument from the start. Yeah, certainly. And then we
1: Brits were on the right there. It took America a long time to realise the virtues of free trade. But it's important not to
2: forget it right now. David, your solutions after your many wanderings across the country. Has it changed anything about the way you think on America?
4: Yeah. So, look, I'm a working reporter, not a politician. So I can tell you, I think, what I've watched politicians do that, that didn't work and didn't fight back against dangerous populists with ideas that we as The economists, don't like. So a classic example is a place like West Virginia, where Donald Trump scored one of his absolute best results by telling people that they could have their coal mining jobs back. He puts on a coal miner's helmet he pretends to dig, and they love him. And then Hillary's campaign professors, experts, economists, the New York Times, you know, journalists like us stuck up sticky beaks, we come with our spreadsheets and we say, no, 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 how silly to believe him, what chumps you must be, because it's to do with natural gas prices, it's to do with the fact that you dig metallurgical coal, so here's another spreadsheet with spot prices for metallurgical coal. What they were missing was that Donald Trump was telling them a story in which they're heroes, in which they're good people doing a dangerous job that is going to help their families have a great life. And then the Liberals... I think those miners correctly sense that the liberals, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and you know, the, the elites, they think, no, you're a wicked person because that coal is going to destroy the world because of climate change. So you do this thing and you're a bad person. And as long as we don't have arguments that acknowledge that people need to feel good and useful and heeded, we're going to keep losing.
2: And if you don't want to keep losing, John, what would the kind of switch in the Democratic Party have to look like to address what David has, has outlined there and to carry forward? albeit on the center-left, you know, the, the ideas that Zannie was laying out.
3: If, and I, I agree with Zanny this long predates Trump, if Democrats in 2020 run on a backwards-looking 20th century Bernie Sanders-style socialism, Donald Trump will get reelected. period, full stop. They instead are going to have to seize the reform mantle and offer what we think of as a modern opportunity agenda that actually enables people a chance to get back the dignity that David's describing Yes, not through one or two or three ideas, through a host of ideas that together form a new social contract. If you go back to the analogy of a 100 years ago, we did not reform and tame capitalism with one or two things. We did a whole series of things over a 40- or 50-year period that collectively tamed capitalism, built a social safety net, and put the country in a different place. We have to undertake the same project now with the same level of fervor to make significant change. Otherwise yes, Trump will get reelected. And one hopes
0: without a cataclysmic global war in between as the immediate spur, because that's that really was what what did it. Um, I'm not in the business of giving advice to Democrats, obviously, but um, if I were to make one suggestion to them, I don't think they're in danger of becoming a socialist party. The resistance to that in the United States is is very great, but they are in danger of being a country that does not respect the national idea at all. The way the Democrats have moved on the immigration issue, I think, is so symbolic. I mean, they are now at the point where they often find themselves arguing that any enforcement activity against any person illegally present inside the United States not at the border but once inside all the all the oxen free, is a crime against human rights they they seem to have decided that the whole world has an entitlement to be an american citizen and that it's wrong for a country to select those people who join the national community and what they don't understand and this is the real from their point of view this is important is if anyone can be part of your national community at any time, self-selected, then that's a pretty thin national community that is not going to be able to make many demands on other people.
2: But in fairness, there is a challenge to Republican politics, moderate Republican politics that is posed by Donald Trump as well. Democrats aren't the only ones on the sharp end of the ideas war. I should probably let John have a word about that too.
3: I don't pretend to give advice to Republicans.
2: (laughs) That's going to be quick.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But, But I will say this. The Republican Party, if it decides... That what Donald Trump stands for is going to be the future of the party. I I don't think it will be a majority party long run. But David's absolutely correct. Many Democrats have lost a sense of of national identity and national purpose that comes with that. But I will tell you, you go out around the country – The single thing from a democratic perspective that swing voters want more than anything is they want economic answers. They're willing to actually overlook a lot of other things if they have those answers. Jonathan
2: Cowan and David Frum, thank you very much for joining us. We hope you'll be back before 175 years is round again. Thanks so much. And joining us now is John Negroponte. He brings a wealth of experience in foreign and security policy, not quite since 1843, our founding year there, John, but over a very long career. You've been a former first director of national intelligence. You've served inter ALIA as ambassador to the UN and Iraq. As we perhaps segue into looking at foreign policy challenges and where they may fit in the view of America and the world and, and what a better period ahead might look like, what would be top of your list?
5: Well, I think perhaps today, top of my list would be to get the administration and the American people thinking about foreign policy again. We've just been through an electoral campaign, which treated foreign policy as sort of an appendage and that everything was about losing jobs and to the extent that there was concern about foreign policy. It was this kind of zero-sum approach to international trade whereby we had to uh, correct uh, these imbalances and deficits in merchandise trade that we have with countries like Mexico and China. And as a consequence of that, I believe uh, the administration has put put the international trading system at risk.
2: Sunny, that's a, a
5: subject we often talk about.
1: I mean, I agree with that. I actually would go even more broadly, and I think the big uh, question that the rest of the world is asking is, what is America's sense of its role in the world right now? Is America still willing to be the leader of the international order to play the Global hegemonic role, if you will. And I think, particularly amongst America's allies, and I speak obviously as a European, there is a real questioning of that willingness. And it is partly because the Trump administration appears to have not just a much more mercantilist view, as you say, but a sort of more transactional, short termist it's a zero sum world. America first means that America needs to gain, at, and it has to be at others' expense. And I think the question is, is that where America is going now? Is it going to an America firstism is something quite different from the leadership role that the rest of the world has has seen since 1945?
4: You're
2: off to China, David Rennie. What do you see as the America-China relationship, which you're now going to be exploring from the other side of that bridge?
4: So it's going to be my second time in China. I left 16 years ago, and the mood here in Washington is unrecognizable. You know, 16 years ago, there were certain inevitable things, that big business was sort of monolithically in favor of opening to China, that it was going to be such a gigantic market, there was going to be more than enough opportunity for everyone. You still had politicians saying that as China became rich, it would inevitably choose to become more like the West, would adopt some of our values. They would confidently talk about when the middle class hit a certain number, a certain level of wealth, they would demand democracy and accountability. That debate is radically different now, perhaps is overshooting in some ways, but the anti-China sentiment right now, the idea that China is not only not choosing to be like America, but is somehow maybe has found some model of autocracy that is more efficient than the chaos and dysfunction here in America. I think that China's rise is colliding with a gigantic crisis of confidence here in the West. And so as I leave for Beijing, I leave an America that is somewhat obsessed with China, but in a way that isn't always very constructive.
2: And John Negroponte, if you were advising Donald Trump now, or indeed, you know, just trying to find the levers in the Department of State to to pull to advise Donald Trump, what would you be saying to him about China?
5: Well, I think we have to be careful here because to not confuse China's rise and automatically interpreted as some kind of uh, animosity towards the West or the United States. When I, I went to China with Henry Kissinger uh, in 1972 on one of the early trips when we were opening up the relationship, I mean, they were so poor. They were coming out of 100, 150 years of uh, war and pestilence. The per capita income was down in the low hundreds of dollars. When we first opened trade with China in 1979, I was in the State Department, I remember that, when we established formal diplomatic relationships. We were wondering, we were asking ourselves, what are we going to buy from these people? And of course, now we've reached the point where we've got this uh, huge uh, deficit of $375 billion or whatever per year. But more importantly, China's rise has meant that it has recovered its strong role in the constellation of countries in the world – that we just have to get used to. So I'm not so sure it's animosity as much as it is difficulty in adjusting to this very new fact. We've been the most powerful economy in the world since the 1870s or 1880s. And we've been the leader of the so-called Western world since uh, 1945. But now we've got uh, this new factor, which raises the question of what is the future of the world Global order.
2: Let's move just a bit down the road, but same region from China and the standoff over North Korea, on which President Trump has has pinned a great deal of hope that that he can do the deal, the big deal on nukes that have eluded other presidents in about the last twenty years. Are you hopeful, Zanny?
1: No. I think I'm I'm deeply skeptical, probably inspired by my, my by my colleagues who who have spent many years and decades thinking about this. I'm 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 hopeful, but I'm skeptical. Put it that way. Uh, I think that this will be the big test case for whether the sort of madman theory of history shaking things up and getting to a better outcome works. And certainly, we would not have expected to be where we are today with a summit possibly coming up, likely to be coming up. And it is possible that we will look back at this moment and think that Donald Trump reshaped America's foreign policy in a positive way, in the same way that we now look back at Reagan and think that he reshaped American foreign policy in a very positive way. I have to say, I'm skeptical about that, because I think that Donald Trump is very fundamentally different to Ronald Reagan, in that he is much less of a strategist, he's much more transactional, he's much more short term, and he's much less interested in the difficult details. You knew Ronald
2: Reagan, John? What
1: do you Yes, reckon? I
5: did. I was his deputy national security advisor. I used to see him uh, every day. Uh, yeah, I do think they're different. But look, one swallow doesn't a summer make. And uh, we may or may not get this nuclear deal. But I don't think Mr. Trump single-handedly can change the direction of American foreign policy. And uh, I think we could easily face a period, a few years hence, where we uh, have a course correction and come back more or less to the traditional role we played before. I really do. You're skeptical, I notice.
1: (laughs) I'm skeptical about that because for the simple reason, and I hear that a lot from the American foreign policy establishment, that we can sort of go back to the status quo ex ante once this aberration of Trump (laughs) has finished. My concern about that is, one, I think Trump reflects deep seated shifts in America's willingness to lead. For example, you raised the protectionism issue. I think that is a fairly deep seated feeling in both parties now. But secondly, the world moves on and particularly China and China, whether it's certainly if there's eight years of President Trump, but even after four, China's position will be substantially different to where it was before. And I think so it's going to be quite difficult to go back to the world before
4: Trump. May I ask the ambassador a question? Because you've seen so many of these. I mean, I'm just so wildly envious that you were there in 72 with, uh, with with Kissinger. Here's my question that worries me. I've spent, uh, knowing I was going to Beijing, I spent quite a long time going to Asia with the Secretary of Defense, with the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, trying to see America's kind of posture in Asia. One thing that worries me is that for a very long time in Asia, America's role was predictable because it was driven by... National interest that everyone understood was sort of unchanging, that America as a great maritime trading power wanted open seas, wanted the international freedom of the seas, wanted freer trade, wanted open markets, and saw its system of alliances in Asia and its troops in Japan and South Korea as a source of strength, even if it cost a bit, it was a source of strength. And Trump, it seems to me, President Trump, by casting those fundamentals of kind of where America's interests lie into doubt, even if he leaves office... Do we go back to where we were before if Asians see that actually America's behavior isn't completely predictable and shaped by unvarying national interests, that actually America can be really unpredictable and can change its mind about where its interests lie?
5: I don't think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we're a large, complex society. This is a country of 360 million people with a government of 2 million people. We've got people carrying out the old policies uh, right now as we speak. The Defense Department, the people who are supporting our alliances, even Mr. Trump, who threatened our alliances during the campaign, has reaffirmed them now. Look at all the talk about NATO before and and NATO now. We've stopped saying that uh, Japan and Korea are sort of on their own and may want to consider developing nuclear weapons. So, you know, how different is it? If it weren't the question – and this is an important point, really. If it weren't the question of Mr. Trump's rather upsetting style, disturbing, so a disruptive style, how differently would we feel about American foreign policy?
2: I've got to read you something on the uh, upsetting and disturbing uh, style there, John, because it comes from The Economist. Where else? In 1843, September the 16th, people are beginning to complain, it says, and not without reason, of such frequent changes in important offices. For example, within three years, there have been three secretaries of state, three of war, three of the Treasury, three of the Navy, three attorney generals and three postmaster generals. Some have really not had time to learn their duties. You really can imagine that. Ronald Reagan
5: had six national security advisors in an eight-year period.
2: Is that a recommendation?
5: And it's not a recommendation. I'm trying to tell you that despite the confusion that reigned, particularly at the beginning of that administration, he's already looked back upon as a rather, having been a rather effective foreign policy president.
1: I do think that we are in the throes of a fairly big shift in this overused word of the international order, which would have been there even without President Trump. Because the rise of the emerging world, the rise of China, which was inevitable, returned to rightful place in history, hastened by its entry into the international system much faster than anybody expected, coupled, frankly, with the relative decline of Russia, which lost its empire from, the you know, you we were there, Anne, from the Soviet Union days, and is now a sort of bellicose, angry, somewhat humiliated, you know, upper mid-level power. This shift would have demanded a change in the global world order. the US couldn't play the post-1945 role forever. And I think what we're arguing about or debating is what the new one looks like. What is the right kind of world order for a 21st century world economy where the US is important, but it's not going to be top dog forever?
2: I think we, we shouldn't leave it, John, without reminding ourselves you were there, you were in the administration at the time of, of Iraq, you were at the UN, you were fighting for those resolutions. I remember writing endless column inches about that a lot of that did not turn out as hoped for, even by those who would still believe that liberal intervention has a place in the world. What did you learn from it?
5: Well, I, uh, I've i been through this a few times. I was in Vietnam. I've been in Central America. I've been associated with our foreign policy for quite a while. So first of all, I'm not a great fan of regime change. It usually comes back to bite you in the tail in one way or another. So I think That's one point. Number two, you know, it really does help to have a U.N. Security Council resolution endorsing your action and to not have had that legitimating imprimatur of the United Nations was basically what did us in.
2: Zani, what do you think? What would you look to the next few years and put your finger perhaps with a view to our open future focus here on where you would like to see American foreign policy take up the baton again?
1: Well, I think the big question for the next few years is what is the 21st century successor to the post war global world order going to look like? And that is going to be determined somewhat by China, which is the rising power, but it's going to be determined overwhelmingly by the decisions that the US makes. The US is still by far the most important. It's the only country that can lead. It's completely nonsense to think that the Europeans can do anything very substantial by themselves. The big democracies, India, Brazil, you're absolutely right that they need to play a bigger role, but they can't do it alone either. Whether we have a functioning, modernized 21st century world order without too much hiccup on the way will depend on decisions made in this country, in this town. And my hope is that, and as we're having our conversation on our 175th about building an open future, my hope is that people in this town realise not just the power of the United States,
2: but the responsibility of the United States to its own citizens, but to the world more broadly to do that. Well, we're off to raise a glass to our 175th. And my thanks to John Negroponte, to David Rennie, and to our editor-in-chief, Sandy minton Bedez. If you'd like to join the Open Future debate, please head to economist.com slash open future. And for more of our journalism and analysis, you can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for 12 American dollars. I'm Anne McElvoy in Washington, DC. This is The Economist.